my name is Peggy Clark. I'm the Vice President of Policy Programs at the Institute and the Executive Director of Global Health and Development. We're fortunate to have two fantastic people speaking this morning, uh, Seth and Lori Garrett. This particular session will be taped by Minnesota Public Radio, so they ask if you would mind please turning off your cell phones, and if you have BlackBerry, putting it on airplane mode. So um, it's really my honor to introduce this session, and Lori Garrett will be our moderator. Lori Garrett is a Pulitzer Prize-winning and other author, a noted journalist, who's written on global health for years. Um, she's written many seminal pieces um, which have really changed the nature of thinking about global health, which have influenced many of us, Seth and myself included. Um, she's the author of The Coming Plague, <clears throat> Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, and um, also has inc wrote a seminal piece called The Next Pandemic in Foreign Affairs that influenced a number of us, among many other things. So, Lori, thanks for being with us. We're so pleased, and we look forward to this session. Thank you. And uh, welcome to you hearty souls that ventured out on this beautiful Sunday morning at this ungodly hour. Uh, and welcome to uh, community or public radio. Oh, public radio. I, I cut my teeth at NPR, so I have a fond feeling for everybody in public radio. And it's a delight. We're going to talk uh, in a pretty broad way today about HIV AIDS, but with some focus on the search for a vaccine. And before I introduce Seth Berkeley, I just want to give everybody a tiny bit of background so that we're all brought up to the same uh, speed, the same spot in uh, our group collective understanding. HIV is what we call a retrovirus, which is to say it is a virus, basically a little tiny package of genetic material that is in the form of RNA. When it gets into a human cell, one of the first things it must do is reverse its RNA into DNA and then insert itself into your genetic material. What has made tackling this virus so insanely difficult is that if you were to try to cure infection, it means that somehow you have to collect, selectively remove those little bits of DNA that are HIV from your genes without destroying the rest of your genetic integrity. We have no idea how to do that. So most of the efforts around the biological control of HIV have been about trying to keep it from getting into your cells in the first place. And unfortunately, our repertoire of tools to do that is somewhat limited. Now, in 1996, we had a huge breakthrough, highly active antiretroviral therapy, it's called. Basically showed that no one drug by itself did a very good job of blocking the virus from getting in or out of human cells it had infected. But if you took a combination of drugs, and very powerful ones, uh, you could completely block the virus's ability to move freely inside of a human body. It didn't disappear, you didn't cure people, but you put the virus at bay. And we, we talk about that as zero viral load, meaning you got the virus down to the point where none of our most sensitive tests can t detect any virus that's moving freely in your bloodstream. That's good news, all right? That's very good news. And starting in the year 2000, Partially 
largely, I would say, because of the moral mandate dictated by Nelson Mandela in Durban, South Africa, the world began a multi-billion dollar campaign to provide that very expensive treatment in cheaper generic form uh, to people living in poor countries who could not possibly afford it. So where we are right now, as I will soon turn to Seth, is that we have an imperfect therapeutic approach to this virus, which has shifted the way that as a global community we deal with it from a public health problem to a medical problem. But it is a huge, expensive, and very, very difficult exercise for the world community. We're not good at doing chronic medical care. In fact, we've never done it before. HIV is the first time. And huge mistakes are being made along the way. And nobody knows if we'll be able to sustain the billions of dollars annually that this requires. So what we really need is what Seth has been searching for for about 20 years. And that is an HIV vaccine or a cure. Today we'll, we'll focus on the vaccine side. Um, so... Let me start by telling you that Seth, in, in the interest of fair play, Seth is a good friend of mine, and uh, we're actually near neighbors. So <clears throat> I will do my best to be the objective questioner, uh, and I'm sure Seth will do his best <laughs> to uh, respond accordingly. Seth comes is a unique individual to come to this problem. Dr. Seth Berkeley trained in medicine in the United States, Harvard-educated, went through a lot of the classic routes of uh, physician training, but then did something that wasn't classic at the time. He took off to Uganda and was there in, I think we could call it the second wave of the Uganda HIV epidemic, if you assume that we're now in the third wave. And it was at a very grim time when there were dead bodies everywhere when whole villages were, were burying the dead. And that was a formative experience that led him to come to the Rockefeller Foundation to run global health programs, and out of that to create the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. So, Seth, let me start with the obvious question that I know you get asked by um, a lot of people in both the biotech industry and the public at large. Uh, what the heck drug were you taking or smoking that made you think that this was going to be an exercise you should dive into when absolutely nobody had any idea how to make a vaccine against HIV? Well, thank you, Laurie, and and thank you all for coming. Um, You know, it's interesting, and I think we'll go back, because I have a number of comments to to the introduction that Laurie made about where we are in the overall field. But the interesting thing is you start off with the need, and that's obviously critical. Vaccines are how we deal with viruses. That's how we've always dealt with viruses. It's the one way you can eliminate a disease like we did with smallpox or control diseases. So when people first figured this out, 
this was a virus in 1984, the first thing they said is, let's make a vaccine. And there's actually a couple of people in this room who were involved with the effort at that point. Um, what was interesting, though, is, is that they, they, they used the traditional vaccine technologies at that moment in time. And, and that was at the, in the beginning of the biotech revolution. Hepatitis B had been the, the, the vaccine that had just been made. And they followed that paradigm. And they made a vaccine that was artificially created. 100% of people got antibody to it. But at that moment, they then realized that that antibodies, those antibodies were directed to the strains of the virus that were used in the laboratory. But when you took it out and tried to connect it to the wild type of strains that were circulating because of all the, the mutations that Laurie was talking about, that it didn't work. So at that moment, people realized the science was really difficult. They also realized initially this was a disease called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. They thought it was a disease of gay men. The initial hypothesis was this might be actually recreational drugs that caused this problem. But when it began to be realized that this was a disease in the developing world, you had the problem of not only the difficult science, but a problem with markets. In those days, vaccines were not sexy. They weren't you know, big commodities. And so... The, the industry moved away from the vaccine area. Now, the public sector, you'd expect, would be there. And, of course, they were there at the beginning as well. But activists, rightly so, were demanding, we need treatment. We've got to treat this. People are dying left and right. You heard Laurie say, bodies everywhere. So they said, let's work on drugs. And scientists said, we don't know how to make drugs for viruses. There was only a couple of licensed antivirals. And the, the, the activists said, we don't care. And they, they took over research facilities. They threw blood on researchers. They drove. And, and in a sense, they deserve the Nobel Prize because today we have more antiretroviral drugs for HIV than for all other viruses put together. But that combination of industry moving away and the public sector focusing, you know, rightfully so, on, on the therapeutic area meant that there was nobody virtually working on vaccines. And so I actually had, as Laurie said, was in Uganda, not so much in the second wave. I was there pretty close to the beginning and had built a system to look at HIV, worked with the Ugandans to build the national surveillance system, did the first zero survey, and that was my aha moment because when we did the zero survey and we saw what the prevalence was in the population, I didn't believe it. I thought the decimal place was in the wrong place or the lab test didn't work. And that's when I... It was 18.6% in the, in the capital city of so Kampala. What year was this? This was in 1986, 1987. So 1986, almost one out of five adults was infected already. Right. And, and we had seen deaths and we had seen people infected, but not large numbers because HIV, one thing Lori didn't say about it is not only does it get in your genome, but it takes seven to 10 years in the developed world, probably slightly less in the developing world to get disease. So what we were seeing was people who had been infected five or seven years later who were sick, but this, you know, burgeoning epidemic had occurred. So it's, it's, I, like, it's like looking with a telescope out into the universe and you're looking at an ancient universe the further out you look. With HIV, you're not looking at today when you look at who has the infection. You're looking at human behaviors that are 10 years ago. That's absolutely right. So I had, when I had left Uganda, moved back, I had worked on a broader portfolio again, and a number of people had come to me and said the AIDS vaccine effort is dead, and I said that can't be right. Um, there's got to be, you know, science are working on it. It's just really hard. And when we began to investigate at the Rockefeller Foundation, sure enough, because of that reason I mentioned, neither public nor private sector was engaged. 
So the question at that point was maybe that was appropriate. Maybe the science was too difficult. Maybe you know, we couldn't move forward. And, and, and what we realized, in fact, though, that there were lots of ways one could move forward. But we needed a new way of working. And, and this is important because academics do research for the purpose of moving knowledge forward, for the purpose of publishing papers, for the purpose of keeping their, you know, their grant funding going. Industry takes you know, things and makes them into products, but does it when there's a market for them, when they see that the risk ratio and the profit ratio are balanced. Since neither one of those worked, we needed a new model, and that model was a public-private product development partnership. And the idea there was to take the, the expertise in academia, but to combine it with the market-driven approach of, of, of industry, I shouldn't say the market-driven, the industrial approach of industry, using a public sector mentality to go ahead and drive forward the HIV vaccine effort. And that's, well, that's what the creation let of Let me IAVI stop was. you there for a second. Has anybody ever, before IAVI, International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, your organization, had anybody done this notion of this mix, did you have a model to look at? We looked at all kinds of models in the original work. We looked at, we looked at Semitech, we looked at Airbus, we looked at all different types of consortiums that would put together public and private. An area that was really important was the contraceptive area. And, and actually, uh, Chris Elias, who's sitting in the room, came to one of the early meetings and brought the contraceptive experience to IAVI. There had a similar problem where industry wasn't investing in contraceptives, so public sector had to invest. And the challenge, again, in that issue on contraceptives was to not do it purely in an academic sense, but to turn it into products. So we had some models, but it hadn't been done in the vaccine area in a big way. And, and today, it isn't only in HIV. There are 20-odd of these product development, public-private partnerships, driving forward products for diseases of poverty. Did you imagine then, let's see, what year are you? This, so this is, we, we've basically been, IAVI's been around for 14 years. 14. 14 years ago, did you imagine that in 2012, 2010, you would still be without a product? Well, it's interesting that, you know, when we started, the hypothesis on the table was that if we used traditional vaccinology, if we went and, and took all of the different tools that have been used in other vaccines, that some of those might work. And so we initially worked on being advocates, trying to getting money and getting people engaged in this, and then taking products and moving them forward as fast as possible in the places that have the highest incidence. That's in the developing world. So we moved forward with, with that type of model, and what we found after a period of time was the traditional approaches didn't work for this disease. So to be honest, we expected that it wouldn't be this long a timeline. We expected that we'd have positive data. Um, that has all changed recently because with the investments in science that have occurred over the last period of time, we're in a virtual renaissance of AIDS vaccine development now, and it is incredibly exciting. So in some sense, you can say we're almost starting afresh, but this is what happens in science. You invest and you, 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 you try things out. They don't work. You go back to the bench. And now there's very, very exciting and promising leads. Before we get to the excitement, I want to step aside and just go through where we are in the epidemic. Yep. So 26 million human beings have died of AIDS. And 30 to 35 million are now infected with this virus. There is going to be a big study released in a couple of weeks by, uh, called the AIDS 2031 Report. All the best minds have come together for the last couple of years trying to imagine what will this horrible epidemic look like when you hit 2031, which would be the 50-year mark since it started, we were aware of it, beginning in 1981. 
And their projections are that we will be up to 37 million dead people. There's only been one epidemic in the history of humanity that claimed larger numbers than that, the influenza of 1918. It would be a larger death toll than the Black Plague of the 14th century. And we have, you know, a tremendous sense of concern about how to balance the treatment side of this effort against all our various prevention tools, condoms and, uh, you know, the hope for a vaginal microbicide, behavior changes, uh, on and on and on to try and slow this seemingly relentless spread. One of the hallmarks of this terrible disease is that we can't identify any human being who has successfully acquired a form of immunity that eliminates the virus from their body. So if you think about it, any other viral disease you can imagine, you hit a bell-shaped curve with an outbreak, and eventually, you know, enough people have developed immunity that the virus starts to come down and go away. But everybody gets antibodies, but they don't work. They don't kill off the virus. So that added another layer of grim reality as these pieces uh, surfaced and people realized them to this effort for the search for a vaccine, all of which sounds like we should just be wanting to shoot ourselves at this point, except some of you may know that we've had one exciting announcement after another all of a sudden, and it's largely because of the efforts of IAVI. Um, Tell us, first of all, about this notion, what are neutralizing antibodies, and why did IAVI make this search for neutralizing antibodies a priority, and what have you found? So before I go to the neutralizing antibody issue, let me go back to the issue on um, how we're dealing with the epidemic. And, and this is one of the great tragedies, because when the, when the epidemic first began, you know, as, as I said, the only thing we could do is think about prevention. But it was in an emergency mode, and we were trying to get information out to people. And um, that information often didn't change behavior. We didn't know how to measure that. As time went on, we focused more and more on treatment, less and less on prevention. And some of the effective prevention methods we, we knew about, like needle exchange, for example. Needles are a very good way to transmit HIV. You're transmitting it directly into the blood, high inoculum. Uh, you know, these were not considered politically acceptable in some places. And so we had this awkward problem. Some religious groups, for example, didn't believe that condoms were, were worthy of using, even between, you know, an infected and an uninfected person who were, you know, married and a, and a stable couple. So what we've had are barrier after barrier to trying to roll out and deal with this prevention. What Laurie said about this 2031 report is important, but in that report, what they assume is that we get 100% you know, uh, use of today's prevention tools, but we've never come close to that. And that is one of the great challenges. And so in the interim, until we have better tools, and I just want to say a word about what the other tools are before we delve into vaccines, which, of course, is my passion. Um, the, 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 you know, in, until we have better tools, we've got to do the best we can, and we've got to use science. And if I have any plea with the audience, that's the way we have to think about this. So, for example, there was a huge movement to say 
abstinence only works. We had study after study that showed it didn't work, and yet you know those policies were continued. So what we need to do for HIV is make sure we use science to try to control what Laurie has described as the second worst epidemic in, in, in history. There are a series of other interventions that are moving forward now. There is, um, people have figured out that you can use antiretroviral drugs for prevention. It's called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. In the monkey model, this works very well. And it's likely it's going to work in humans. So you may hear about that because there are some announcements that are going on at this conference. And if, even if they don't break a code with positive information at this conference, we'll eventually see it. It raises the incredible ethical dilemma of how do you use the same drugs that today only about 40% of the world are getting for this disease. So people are still dying of this disease. You would have to take those drugs, give them to people who aren't yet infected, which means one for one, somebody's dying for somebody else getting drugs. So it's a huge ethical dilemma, but it's likely the pre-exposure prophylaxis will work. The search for a microbicide, a tool that women could use or men who have sex with men, again, they're coming forward, and those would be the prob- one of the problems is that women don't have tools themselves that they can use. And so this is a problem in a situation where sometimes men control the sexual uh, experience, and many cultures, women are, you know, sexually abused or raped. And so, again, having a tool that women could use is important. The problem there has been one of compliance and, you know, will people use it all the time and, and will it be a good intervention? We've talked about condoms. There are female condoms. There's even this concept of test and treat. Um, if, you, if you put everybody on antiretroviral drugs and you tested them all the time, it's likely you'd reduce the, 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 the amount of virus in the community. But again, is this a practical issue? So it takes us back to vaccines. So to answer Lori's questions, Why did we focus on antibodies? Antibodies traditionally are how vaccines work. So if you look at other other vaccines, they work on antibodies. They also, uh, a number of them, uh, bring in cellular immunity, which is the other arm of the immune system. So antibodies are little bits of protein that are very specific, that attach to something, and then the immune system can destroy it. Cellular immunity is when a cell is infected, the immune system recognizes that by some markers on the surface and destroys that cell. So... Traditionally, the way vaccines are done, most of them are live attenuated, live weakened vaccines. And we think that if you weakened HIV, it would probably work. And if you look in the best of the animal models, which is the monkey model, you can take weakened SIV, which is the monkey equivalent of AIDS, and you can get very robust protection. So you ask the question, why not do that in humans? Well, Lori's already told you about this being a retrovirus and the mistakes it makes. Nobody is willing to put a weakened HIV into a person because if it was to revert back to wild type, you would have somebody who would be infected with HIV. And there actually were years ago some people who had, through blood transfusion, received the equivalent of a live attenuate, a weakened HIV. And those people initially looked healthy, and people said, my God, this is, the, this is the strain we should use for a vaccine. And then what happened over time, they began to be immunosuppressed. So we, what we realized, though, is that what we needed was antibodies. And we didn't just need antibodies that would bind to a laboratory strain. We needed antibodies that would work to wild type. And it turned out that... What is actually circulating in the world. And I think we should also clarify that we, because the word may come up, we have very different families now of HIV. The virus has been mutating and evolving very rapidly. If you look at the family tree of HIV, it's this huge, complex structure, not like, say, uh, the family tree of measles. And, uh, well, even flu. You all know that flu, flu varies. Every year we get a new vaccine. If this is flu, 
this is HIV. Yeah, in so, terms of, so we call the main branches, the big strong branches that all the little ones are on, clades. And there are different clades in circulation in different parts of the world. One problem we've had in the neutralizing antibody search, as I understand it, is that a lot of the work's been targeted to what's called the B clade, which is here in North America. It makes sense. We work on our own viruses. But that doesn't do any good in Africa. That doesn't do any good in most of Asia. So, please. So, um, prior to um, this period here, which I'm calling a renaissance, um, what had happened was, um, as Laurie had said, a number of investigators had found neutralizing antibodies that were broad, and so what that meant is it neutralized a large number of strains. And in large numbers, in some cases, was 35% of strains, 50% of strains. But again, in a, in a geographic limitation. And over the last decade, people had worked to try to understand how those, uh, those uh, antibodies worked. And there were really four or five. The fifth one is kind of a, a, a slightly different of one of the four. And, and they were unusual antibodies. They attached on like the stalk of where HIV would attach to the cell. And they had weird shapes. And... And they weren't very potent, but people had been working to understand them. They worked out the structure of them, and they had tried to figure out, could they go and make a way to produce these antibodies, even though they weren't that good? So we asked the question, if there are four, there must be more. And this was like searching for a needle in a haystack. And we began a program, and we went around the world this time. We didn't do it just in the U.S. We went to Africa. We went to Asia. We went to Europe. And we began to look for people who might have serum that neutralized in, in a broader sense. And we, we took 2,000 people, and we had to know these people so we could go back to them. And we analyzed their sera, and we found that, in fact, about 10% of people had sera that neutralized pretty broadly. And about 1% had very, very good neutralization. And then we began to ask the question, could we now begin to isolate the antibodies in those sera? And we didn't know how to do that, and, and we threw a process we had at IAVI to engage different pharmaceutical biotech companies, and including some who weren't working in HIV but had interesting technologies in other fields. We brought them into this, this effort, and we began to look for antibodies. And, and last year, we found a new antibody that was extraordinarily potent and extraordinarily broad. So that was the first kind of big analysis. And as we began to look at that antibody, it turned out that it had a different target. So we found a novel target. That's the place where the antibody attached. And this time it was on the surface of the virus rather than buried you know, deep below. So now we had an antibody that was very potent that was on the surface and a target that we could go after. Since then, as, as Laurie has said, this same technique has been done. The NIH has done this. They've found now some very potent antibodies. And if you take those antibodies, one antibody from them, one antibody from us, and put it together, it covers 100% of the strains. Since wait, wait, then, wait, are you getting excited now? Are you all less depressed than you were when I first started this conversation? Stay tuned. More coming. So since then, now I've told you that we had uh, 2,000 people, and so we've taken 1% of them, elite neutralizers. We're now in the process of running through the, the neutralizers. And what we've, we've been able to figure out is that there are um, some of the antibodies. We haven't gone through and isolated all of them yet, but what we can look at is whether the people who have broad neutralization have it in the same families, the same place. Is it likely to be the same antibody we're seeing in multiple people? And the answer is yes. So the, the first antibodies I described, which we call PG9 and 16, and if, uh, that's an arcane name, but that's what they're called, um, there's a family around that. So there's probably other antibodies that go to that site, which is conserved. 
And by the way, that site might also be good for drug development. The, the second one I described was the CD4 binding site. That's where the virus binds to it, the cell it, it, it has to attack. You can think of it as the doorknob that the cell has to turn in order to open the door and punch, that the virus has to turn in order to open the door and punch its way into a cell. It's called CD4. So those antibodies are, are a class. And, and since the first announcement, Lori just waved a paper, there's actually been a number more of those antibodies to that site, which allows you to map out the site and understand what's going on there. Lots of them. But, That's exciting. But since then, there's also now been other sites on the virus. And we don't exactly know where those sites are now, but we know that they're different than those other two areas. So as of two or three years ago, we basically didn't have... Uh, what we call targets in drug development. We now have those. We have very potent antibodies. And there's three ways to think about it. So the goal at the end would be to take a, a, a product you'd inject into a person and make those antibodies. If you could do that, and I've already told you that you could neutralize 100% of the strains, you would have a vaccine that would protect everybody. Doing that retrovaccinology, going from an antibody back to something you could inject, hadn't been done before in, in, in science. Now, in drug development, we do it all the time. We end up you know, understanding a target and go back and making a drug to do that. Um, recently, the Merck Corporation has, has proven the principle. They've done this with an HIV antibody, but they started with one that was not very good, that was an old one many years ago, not very potent, and they've been able to go from the antibody back to creating an antigen to a vaccine, and then induce it that antibody. So they've proven that this can be done now. And so that's really the race we're going to be in now, is trying to turn these products into, um, in, into a, an injection we could use. Now, there's two other points I'd bring. We could now do passive immunity. Now, all, there's a number of people in the room who are old enough to remember when you used to go traveling, you might have gotten a shot called gamma globulin to, to block hepatitis A infection. And what that really was was just pooled antibodies, and in there were enough hepatitis A antibodies to prevent it. So we could theoretically give people these new antibodies, and that would protect them. But that's not really a public health solution. So that's one possibility we could do right now. The second thing that we're exploring is we could actually take the genes that produce these antibodies, and you could transfer those genes to people. And then those people would produce the antibodies. Now, obviously, at the end, that's not a public health solution for the 6 billion people in the world who probably should be vaccinated. So, but that, again, is another technique in the interim we could use before we've cracked the antigen going back to antibodies. But this is really kind of where the field is. I, I want for people to get a sense of the scale of what we're talking about here. Just uh, uh, how many countries are you now working in? So IAVI is working in 26 countries. 26 countries. When we say you're working in 26 <sighs> countries, that means there's a collaborative laboratory, a team of scientists, what, cohorts? Not all of those. And the way we work is in some countries, and now we've talked about the antibody side, we haven't ignored the cellular immunity side because the way an average person... Well, if person you're going to do that, I have to clarify. There are two branches of immunity. No, I said that, I said that already. You, I, did, I, I didn't. Yeah. Did everybody understand that? Okay, sorry. So <laughs> the idea, um, if, you, if you ask the question, be, when people realized they couldn't solve the antibody problem, they didn't know how to do it, they said, well, actually, the way most people deal with HIV during their lifetime is cellular immunity. So what happens is you get infected with HIV, 
And then the body sees it, and you make a cellular immune response, and that holds it in check for a period of time until the HIV virus destroys your immune system, and then it takes off. So we know that, that the cellular immunity system can work pretty well. So people said, well, you know, we don't know how to do antibodies. We'll just do cellular immunity. And um, there was a, a fabulous program, um, a number of programs. Ultimately, the Merck Corporation took a vaccine um, forward into an efficacy trial a couple of years ago, and it didn't work. It didn't work at all, and it was an enormous disappointment to the field. Turned out that that vaccine did not provide a very broad base of, of cellular immunity. And again, you've heard there's lots of different strains and the things changing. And so people haven't forgotten the fact that there could be cellular immunity. And so there are a series of approaches that are moving forward on the cellular immunity side. And all of those, there's now six of those that look better than the Merck candidate. And so the ideal would be to combine both. Why would you do that? Well, if somebody you know, got an infection anyway, if they broke through whatever protection you gave, you would then have cellular immunity that would protect the person from the virus further spreading. Now, the reason I, I, I said that is when we talk about our 26 countries, some countries we work with a, uh, the best scientist there who has a, you know, a certain technique. Some countries we work with a company that has a particular exciting vaccine. Some places we have laboratories that are isolating antibodies. We have many trial sites around the world. World. And, and that's the kind of the best side of globalization. The bad side of globalization, of course, is that this virus actually didn't start in 1981 when, when uh, Laurie said, rightfully so, we first saw it in the United States. It existed in Africa probably for 100 years, but it existed in small villages where it didn't spread. But now, of course, you can have you know, breakfast in that village, you can have lunch in London, and you can have dinner in New York. And so viruses are moving around the world. And so when we think about these types of diseases, we have to think of the spread of them as global and a threat as global. But we also have to do is use science in a global sense. And that's one of the hardest things because we organize our science normally nationally. You know, you have a, a national system that supports national institutions, and that's great. That's how we get, you know, science. The NIH produces science in the U.S., the MRC in Britain, the ANRS in France. But what we need to solve a problem like this is the best technique in Japan combined with the best techniques in Canada, and you have to have a way to put those together with the places where the epidemic is spreading the most. And that, I think, is some of the secret to how we're doing science now that's very different. I just have two more questions for you, and then I'm going to let I, what I suspect is this very eager audience um, come in with their questions. The, when I asked you about to describe the scale of this operation, you know, another whole component of the scale of it is the pharmaceutical industry's commitment, and that has fluctuated over time. And I need to have a sense from you where that is now. And the second um, is our federal government's commitment. The lion's share of all public sector spending on HIV vaccine pursuit is your tax dollars. Uh, Americans by far outspend everybody else in the entire world. It's what, 95%? It's about, it's about 80%. 80%. Of all the money going from in the public sector for HIV research, uh, vaccine research is U.S. One of the things that is to give you an idea of the scale of that, that is a piece of that, is um, Los Alamos National Laboratory down the road here has uh, one of the largest selections of supercomputers on the planet. One whole section of those supercomputers is devoted to maintaining all the sequences of all the known HIV viruses ever found anywhere in the world. 
And it's the largest repository of genetic information about this virus that exists. And by scanning that, they have discovered certain genetic pieces using very complex mathematical algorithms. They've been able to find certain genetic pieces that seem to track and what we are describe in biology seem to be conserved no matter how much the virus mutates and, and evolves. And by creating, tell them what a mosaic virus is. Well, so one of the questions, if you go back to the cellular, we, we've talked about the antibody side. It's pretty clear what has to happen there. And, and one of the things I forgot to mention that's interesting is that when people get infected with HIV, they don't get infected with thousands of strains unless you're getting it intravenously, different mode of transmission, normal heterosexual transmission, and less so with homosexual transmission, which can be bloodborne. But heterosexual transmission, at least, you get infected with one, two, maybe three strains. And so the target at the time of infection is very small, as opposed to if you were to go to somebody who's been infected for years and has tens of billions of variants of virus. So that's one of the reasons we're so optimistic about, about taking prevention forward. On the cellular immunity side, the question was raised, okay, we're going to now try to make cellular immunity. What do we use in the vaccine? Do we use the strain of virus in a local area? Well, you've already heard that the viruses are changing. Do we use a consensus, which is you know, somewhere in the middle of that tree that Laurie described, an average virus? And so people have begun to ask the question, could we create either a conserved uh, um, uh, uh, antigen that would just have the most conserved pieces on it, and that's one technique. Another way to do it would be to, to use a computer and try to figure out, and as Laurie described, a mosaic where you say, okay, here's, the, here's the, what most people have, but if they don't have it, it changes to this or changes to this or changes to this. So we'll create an artificial uh, a genome that is made up of not only the most conserved parts, but where they might go with evolution change. And this and isn't just theoretical. That, no, so right now, both of those approaches are approaches that we're moving forward into vaccines into humans to go ahead and, and, and see which of these is better. But one of the problems is we don't have a perfect animal model for the cellular immunity side, which means we have to take these into humans. We have to take them into efficacy trials, which takes a long time and is quite expensive. And that's you know, one of the things that would, of course, help us a lot in, in, in vaccinology would be if you had an animal model that was validated and we knew it worked, because then you could say, well, we can at least decide which of these approaches are better. But you have taken these to, into human trials. They're not, the, the mosaic trial has not yet been into humans. It's oh. never been into humans. It's going to go into humans hopefully next year. The conserved uh, sequence approach is also... We, we've previously done approaches like that that we've taken into humans. Um, they haven't, unfortunately, been robust enough. So this is a, an ongoing challenge. So here we are at this exciting moment where after grim, grim, relentless bad news, all of a sudden... Things are popping. What's the budget? Well, let me just say two other things before I answer the budget question, and that is I didn't mention um, uh, an exciting finding that uh, also occurred this last year, which is for the first time we had evidence of a vaccine working in humans. And this was a vaccine that was a mixture of a vaccine that had previously been used for antibodies and, um, and tried to get cellular immunity. It was tested in Thailand in 16,000 people in a very low-risk cohort, so it took a very long time to test it. And the vaccine um, ha had a, an efficacy rate of 30%. It was just barely statistically significant. It looked like the immune response didn't last very long. And people don't quite understand 
why it worked or what immune response it's done. So I wanted to put that out there because not only do we have exciting science to make better vaccines, but we also have evidence in humans that you can get protection. And so that kind of changes the dynamic. Now, as Laurie has asked, what, what is the budget for this effort? Um, the world spends now somewhere around $40 billion a year on AIDS. It's a big number. And uh, a lot of that is spent in the West, but, but a, a substantial proportion because of the attempt to get antiretroviral drugs out to the world and provide people with universal access, which the G8 agreed to in 2005, um, is, is spent in the developing world. The HIV vaccine arena had peaked at about $850 million. By the way, when we started, and remember I said there wasn't a lot going on, the world, the entire world was spending about $150 million. That's public and private, industry, et cetera. And, and you know products cost a billion and a half dollars, and those are simple products. Gee, that, kind of a surprise we didn't have a vaccine if yes. we were only spending $150 million. Um, Jonas Salk had more money to work with than that. So um, what's happened over time, that has increased, unfortunately, with the recession that has gone back down. And if you break it down, as Laurie has said, most of the money is coming from the U.S. government. Um, the pharmaceutical industry spends uh, about 10% of that. The, the amounts have dropped dramatically recently in, in Europe and the rest of the world. The U.S. has kind of stayed steady. Part of it is because of the Obama stimulus package, which went to NIH and funded activities. But um, this is a time, of course, when the, the world is really excited about that, and, and we're going to do our best to try to get the world to back up that excitement with the financial resources, because we're at a stage now where these discoveries could turn into an industrial stage, which, what does that mean? In the past, it's been, gee, we don't know quite what to do, and so we're still in the discovery phase. We need those scientists everywhere looking for new ideas. Now, with new targets, with good antibodies, what we need to do is have an intense industrial-like effort to put more and more um, researchers to try to turn these into immunogens, more and more experiments in, in the best of the animal models to try to solve it. And so um, we're hoping over the next period of time to convince the world that that's something that needs to happen. Fantastic. So now it's, uh, we have an opportunity to open it up for questions. We have two microphones, and I'm going to have to ask you to go to one of those microphones because you are speaking to the radio audience, not just to the audience in this room. One in the back and one right up in the front. And I see our first questioner ambling to the mic. Please uh, say, tell us who you are. And oh, I'm Jessica Fullerton. I live in Aspen. Um, I'm wondering if there's a lot of cooperation among researchers, or is it a very competitive field like it was to find the cause of HIV? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, there is certainly competition in the field. And, and what's interesting is that what you need for science is, is somewhere in between. So if everybody is competing and not sharing any information, it's a bad thing. If everybody is working as one harmonious team... It's not a good thing either, because what you need to do is make sure that people follow different avenues of research, that people test each other's uh, hypotheses and see if they work. And so I think we're now in a pretty good uh, place in the middle. So there are multiple different groups. Um, I, I described the, uh, the, the, one of the new antibodies that came out of NIH that occurred on, that was announced on Thursday of last week. That was a group that works closely with us on the whole neutralizing antibody area. They're part of our consortium, but did this piece of work separately using a slightly different technique than the one we're using. And that type of, you know, I'll call it healthy competition is really what makes science buzz. So I think we're in a pretty good place right now. Questions? 
My name is Don Flax. I live in Bedford, New York. <clears throat> my question is, you talked about the 16,000 people test in, in Thailand, I think it was. Um, well, how are those people selected? And, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what you found out about it and how. That's a good point he's bringing up. Is, uh, perhaps we could broaden it a little bit beyond what his question to ask ethically. How do we do these vaccine tests? We're, because uh, if you want a quick response, then you want to target populations that are at very high risk of becoming infected, sex workers, uh, very sexually active gay men, um, people who are injecting drugs. Uh, on the other hand, shouldn't you be giving them condoms and safe needles, and isn't the moral imperative in that direction? So I, th I think he has a very important question. So um, when you're doing trials, as Laurie has described, um, you, you initially start with people who are at low risk. And the reason you do that is and you, what you're looking for are people who are otherwise healthy. Traditionally, in the United States, we've used military recruits. We've used medical students, uh, that type of people. But rapidly, because we don't know what's going to work, you have to go into high-risk groups. And one of the reasons is the size and cost of the effort. So we traditionally have gone to places where there's a high incidence of HIV. And... By going to those communities, you not only um, are able to get the answers better, but you also engage the community in, in the research. And that's very important because ultimately you're going to want to roll these products out in these places. And so having local researchers doing the research, understanding the issues, knowing that the products are successful in their populations are really important. And We've found groups in, across Africa that have incidence rates, that's new infections per year of somewhere in the range of 3 to 8%. Now, that's an extraordinary number, but per Lori's point, every one of those people is given all the tools they need. They're given condoms. They're counseled on not having unprotected sex. Um, and, and, and one of the groups that we've worked very closely with have been discordant couples. That's where one member of a, of a stable couple is infected and the other one isn't. And even if they're using the best protection methods, they still have a risk of getting infected. The particular answer in Thailand, and, and by the way, we didn't do that trial. That was done by the U.S. military, was a community-based trial of relatively low-risk people. And at the end of the day, after many years and 16,000 people, they ended up having 125 infections. And the reason that's important is that the difference between the, uh, the, the group that was vaccinated and non-vaccinated was 23 infections. And so when you're now trying to go back and ask the question, how might you measure the differences between the groups, it's very hard to do. And that makes one of the challenges. You know, for example, in malaria vaccinology, it's much easier because in malaria vaccinology, you can go ahead and challenge people with malaria and then treat them. And so you can do trials very quickly. Of, of course, in, in HIV, we could never do anything like that. In fact, our job is to make sure that infection rates are as low as possible in the trials. So the, the point is that then you have to do a trial that actually contradicts your objective. You have to be trying to prevent people from getting infected when what you have to see is how many get infected. Gentleman in the middle there. Yes, my name is Ron Sims. Uh, my question goes to one of percentages. I'm just curious about what types of people have AIDS, whether it be the U.S. or Europe or other parts of the world generically. And also, I don't know much about AIDS, and, but I do know obviously there's a sexual contact, there's a blood transfusions, there's needle exchanges. 
I'm curious about the percentages of, of, you know, how many people get affected in certain of these areas. So, may I, what? May I take because of our report? Sure. So, uh, I'm working on a report for the United Nations that will be coming out in a few months, and it turns out that nobody has, on a global scale, done a very good job of correlating what we call incidents, as, as Seth said, who's newly infected with mode of transmission. How did they get infected? But roughly, it, it breaks down that somewhere between 75 and 80% of the infections in the world are the result of sexual uh, contact between men and women. The second largest group is sexual contact between men and men. But almost the same size is a group that is intravenous drug use and associated contaminated needle exchange and sharing of needles. Um, I, I made one mistake. Actually, the biggest second group, uh, even bigger than men who have sex with men, is mother-to-child transmission. So, which makes sense. If our largest group is heterosexual transmission, then you have a lot of infected mothers. Um, the good news is for that one, we know how to f- stop that. We know how to protect those babies. Uh, and then down the list come uh, two crucial groups, and we really don't know the numbers. One is how many people are being infected through accidental needle stick injuries. This is mostly a challenge for healthcare workers but is increasingly a challenge also in waste disposal. Where do those needles go? And you've all seen the pictures of children crawling over garbage heaps looking for things to sell and stepping on needles. Huge problem in India. Uh, We don't know how many people are getting infected by that route, but it is a big enough number that anecdotally it is cited by many physicians, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, as one of the reasons they are leaving the profession or emigrating out of Africa to other countries because of their fear of becoming infected on the job. And then the final is blood transfusion. It certainly appears to be a very small number now, probably less than 2% of the global burden of infection um, because so much work has been put into improving the blood banking systems around the world and uh, sadly, in rural areas, in poor countries, we still have the situation where in a crisis, uh, relatives are simply hooked up one to the other for immediate crisis infusion, and no HIV test is done on the donating uh, relative, and that is still a source of infection. Did you want to add anything to that? Okay. I'm sorry. Good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, I'm Carol Siegel from Chicago, Illinois. I actually have two, so two questions. Uh, the other morning on uh, the radio, um, I uh, was uh, my ears perked up because they, they had announced that they had a patient where they had isolated 88, 88 of the um, antibodies of four AIDS. And I wanted to know, is that part of your, your hand in research? And then also, too, I wanted to know if there would be any spinoff in your new approach to research and such things as influenza, et cetera? So that's a great question. So the announcement you heard the other day was about this new antibody um, from the, the, um, 
from the NIH team uh, that's broadly neutralizing and that neutralizes a large number, a percentage of the strains. And so that was uh, the, one of the CD4 antibodies I talked about. Um, it is really exciting in vaccinology right now. So uh, one of the things that we learned is this search now for um, places that are conserved with neutralizing antibodies, people have done the same thing using, by the way, the same machinery that we set up to do this, the same scientists, and they found for influenza some antibodies that are also uh, broadly neutralizing. They've gone back and tracked those and found where they bind on the influenza virus. Now, in influenza, you have a problem in an acute outbreak where um, some people get a primary influenza pneumonia. And although you theoretically, your body can handle that, it's so overwhelming that people can die during that period. And that's one of the great causes in these pandemics of young, healthy people dying with a you know, profound immune response. Um, what, what, what they now is a company that is going on and making these antibodies that could be used in that type of situation as an emergency treatment to allow your body to stabilize enough and then fight off the infection. A longer-term goal would be to then do exactly the same retrovaccinology to try to create an influenza vaccine that gave you broad neutralization and therefore wouldn't have to change every year. So we're seeing these techniques. Some people are using some of the same techniques around hepatitis C now, which is another disease that's bad and that doesn't have a vaccine. So I think we're going to see you know, a really interesting uh, uh, process go on over this period of time. We have time for this last question. I'm Richard Hillman from Aspen, Los Angeles. My son contracted uh, HIV 14 years ago. He died over a little, little over a year ago from an AIDS-related uh, issue. Um, he contracted it through heterosexual sex with a girlfriend who was drug addicted who contracted it through needles. So one of the very scary things is for all classes of social economic uh, levels, this is a very fearful disease, and this can hit any one of us. And it certainly has devastated our family. Now, what is the time horizon, if you can give us one, for when you might be able to develop vaccines that can cover a broad area of the mutations? That's what was greatly difficult for my son because the virus kept mutating. So the new three cocktail combination kept failing. So what is the time horizon for helping those who have contracted it with a vaccine that gives a high possibility of, someone mentioned 88%, I read last week in another magazine, there was a 90% one that is surfaced. For those who have it, and then for those who possibly don't have it, that provides a, a, a vaccine for preventing it in the future. So, um, you know, first of all, I, I, you make a great point, and, and obviously it's, 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 it's terrible to hear the story, but it makes exactly that point, which is a lot of people have said about HIV, it doesn't affect me, it doesn't affect, you know, my family, and, and the answer is it can affect any of us at any time, and, and we have to think that way and keep it on the agenda, because one of the dangers that's occurring right now is people have said, oh, we did HIV, and now, you know, you've heard with this last G8 summit, it was about maternal child health, a very important area. But you can't forget that we've got to finish what we've done with HIV. And finish it means to have treatments we can use for when strains become resistant, but also better vaccines. The initial attempt is to make uh, preventive vaccines. And you can't predict science. But with all of this new science coming out, I think we will have breakthroughs in the, in the near term. The challenge is going to be how much effort do we put on it and how fast can we drive those forward. 
these vaccines will probably have use in treatment as well. And the way you'd think about doing that is probably you'd put people on you know, a very large number of drugs, drive the virus level down to you know, nothing, and then immunize them or even try to reconstitute their immune system because HIV does uh, suppress their immune system, reconstitute their immune system, vaccinate them until you get a very robust immune response, and then hopefully you'll be able to withdraw those drugs and allow the person to you know, control their own infections. That would be the way you'd use it as a therapeutic vaccine. But there is no precedent for therapeutic vaccines, and you would have to worry about breakthroughs given the large numbers of strains. And so that's something that I think will come after we figure out how to do this in a prophylactic smallpox, fashion. Smallpox worked as a therapeutic vaccine. I mean, you could, within 24 hours, pull somebody out of death's doorstep with a vaccine to smallpox in the old days. But... I, I think, uh, first, I want to thank you very much for having the courage to share your story with the group and to say I'm sorry for your loss. One of the things you've also illustrated is the limits on the, even the treatment armamentarium we have. The virus keeps mutating, and drug-resistant strains keep surfacing. And yet again, another pressure point for why we need a vaccine Yes, we're getting drugs out all over the world now and in some of the most remote, desperately poor places on the planet. But mutations are occurring and the first-line therapies are failing. The second-line therapies are far more expensive, far more expensive. And the third-line therapies, more expensive than that. There are new drugs coming out of the pipeline. They are going to be even more expensive. So we have a real challenge. The pressure is on. And I want to thank Seth Berkeley for at least giving us some excitement that reality down the pipeline is positive. The light is at the end of that tunnel. And to all of you who were here this morning and to the radio audience, thank you very much. Thank you.